One of the benefits of reading the Bible from cover to cover is that it provides you with kind of a holistic per perspective on life in general, not just the text itself. Many people have trouble understanding the cohesiveness of Scripture or literally the God's plan of redemption because they've opened the book and read this part and that part. But when you go from cover to cover over and over again, it comes to a point where you begin to say, I see what he's trying to say, that God has this plan that he established from before the foundations of the created world. And it's something that he will bring to a conclusion because not only does it tell us how everything began in what is known as in the beginning, to also to tell us exactly how that story is going to end. We might say it's really the book ends from Eden to eternity that's presented before us. And one of the consistent facts is that we find throughout it all is that God throughout it all is seated upon what the psalmist called his everlasting throne. From in the beginning until the very last words we read in the book of Revelation where he says, it is done. Which is why all of history literally is his story, if I can use that kind of cliche. He is the author, he tells us in Hebrews, but he's also the finisher. In other words, he wrote the first chapter and he's going to write the last chapter, not only of time and history, but also of your life and of my life. And there's a certain importance to understanding that because there's a sense that God being on the throne is also in control of events that take place. Where we get confused is how do we fit into that preordained and, if you prefer, predestined plan of God. As I've said many times before, one of the great mysteries of the universe is that God has predestined everything and yet at the same time he has extended to each and every one of us a certain degree of sovereignty. That the plan is laid out, but how we interact with it is something that God has chosen to leave to us now, there are some people saying, well, no, we're, we're predestined and therefore we're predestined to be saved or we're predestined to be lost. We have no choice in it, which doesn't make a great deal of sense to me for many reasons, but one of them being that why does God even tell us to do anything if we're already predestined to do them? You know, my car does what it does because it's set up to do what it does. And fortunately, this morning, part of its setup was to start and get me here. But the fact of the matter is, it, it doesn't have a choice beyond, beyond the point of simply just one day breaking down and dying. But God tells us that you and I have a choice. Over and over, he commands certain things, he expects certain things. He tells us that what we reap, we will sow, that there are natural consequences, that if we disobey God, there's a consequential impact to that. That it isn't a zero-sum game where we're just simply locked into it, but we have opportunities. And part of that opportunity is that we can cho choose the part that we play in that story to some degree. You see, amazingly, one of our own choosing is that we can choose to be the protagonist or we can be choose to be an antagonist. Yet no matter how small or prominent a role we might play... In the end, it's designed so that we would understand that whatever we do, it's all about him. It will always be about him, even when we desperately try, and often do, try to make it about us. 
If you want to see what is the real philosophical conflict that exists in our world today, it's not about some of the highly themed things that we see and hear and read about. It really comes down to one thing, his will or my will. And some people say, he doesn't exist, therefore it's just about my will. And they have comforted themselves by making that statement. And yet, what Book of Revelation very clearly tells us is that there comes a day and an hour in which God will make it very clear that no, it's his will, not our will. Now, Shakespeare put it very simply. And he, the people of his day, certainly looked at life through the lens of the biblical perspective. And he said, all the world's a stage and all men and women are merely players. So that we play out our role that we either choose to be sinner or saint, a rebel or a follower, a blasphemer or a worshiper. But we all play the part which is ultimately the part of our own choosing. I've once likened it to being on a cruise ship where you don't control either the port of departure or the, the port that you're going to eventually um, get off at. But how you act while you're on that ship is really up to you. You can do all sorts of things, good, bad, and ugly, especially if you try any of those rumba classes they offer. Whew. That's just not pretty. Uh, seriously, should be a law against that. But more than players, God invites us to also be seers. Interesting, in the Old Testament, they called a seer was a prophet, someone who would see into the future, and a prophet is somebody who foresees. So in a way, I would say that we are foreseers by virtue of having his word. That God in his great love and his great mercy and his great grace allows us to even now catch a, a glimpse, a, a peak preview of coming attractions through the vehicle of prophecy. That we might use the power of perception to choose wily, wisely the part that we're going to play and how earnestly we're going to play that part. As we see in this opening passage that we just read, the, the world is portrayed to us as being on literally the eve of destruction. Heaven is rejoicing at this moment, not because or despite of the horrors that are taking place and coming upon the earth and its inhabitants, but it's rejoicing because it is at the end. That end is in sight that final fulfillment of, of Jesus' last words on the cross when he said, it is finished. Because on the other side of the horrific judgment is the joy unspeakable. A joy that is there because certain things will not be there. That the ugliness of life, the crime, the corruption, the catastrophe, the cataclysm, the death, the injustice, and on and on it goes but also those who have received him will also receive, as he tells us, a kingdom and a priesthood to serve God and reign with him on the earth forever and ever and ever. And these are being held up as the prayers of the saints from the very beginning who cried out to God for the day in which they would be delivered from the things of this life and be able to live and reign with him forever. Now, that whole sense is somewhat dulled in our cultural setting. 
because of our prosperity, because of our security, because of our safety, relatively speaking. We live in a country that has never really been seriously invaded until the last uh, administration on our border, but we've never really faced an intrusion by a foreign country. We often maybe kind of teasingly and somewhat seriously make fun of people in Europe, but you have to understand whether you're Russian or French, you have been overrun by armies even within recent history, leading to tens of millions of death and tremendous destruction and loss of property and fortune and wealth. And so for them, the idea of living in a peaceful environment is something that they desperately try to achieve it may look as being a form of cowardice or lack of boldness, but again, you have no idea what it's like to live in that kind of world like our brothers and sisters in Israel are deal dealing with at this very moment. I remember my friend Ronnie Simon said he was so concerned that the young generation growing up in Israel would not appreciate the battles and, the, and how, fought, how hard fought their freedoms were and the cost that came with it. And now he is no longer concerned because they're experiencing it firsthand. The thing that they wish would never come is the thing which keeps on coming back. And think about it when you're in heaven and you're looking at this history of humanity which has been really red with blood and claw since its earliest morning. Since Cain murdered his brother Abel, men have been doing horrible and horrific things to one another ever since. Lawlessness has reigned more than justice or peace and freedom. And as a consequence, those who are redeemed will look and say, finally, it's over. Finally, there will be an end. As he promised them in the end of Revelation in chapter, four of, chapter 21, verse 4, he said that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old, the, the broken order of things has passed away. It goes on, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him, is, to him who is thirsty, he says, I will give to drink without cause, without cost from the springs of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the moment that Jesus said we should be praying for each and every day, every time, and always when we pray. When his disciples asked them that him to teach them how to pray, he said, this is how you should be praying. Our Father, who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that the idea is to bring our lives individually as much as we can understand and are capable into as full an agreement with what God's will is in heaven. That we might in our small little realm replicate what's going on in heaven. That our goal, if you would be, is not so much to succeed, but to submit. 
not to build edifices or institutions or fortunes or legacies, but to build the kingdom of God. Not to lead, but to faithfully follow. Not to be powerful, but to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Not to be so full, but to be, as Paul described it to the Philippians, poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. To be willing to embrace a daily emptying of our pride, and we have much of it, and selfish ambition, where we are seeking more for the approval of heaven than we are from the applause of men. Because Jesus warned in Luke 16, 15, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sights of God. Literally, abomination means it's an object of disgust that God looks at it and just says, that's disgusting, that's wretched. That's a troubling passage for me, if you will be. (laughs) That which is highly esteemed, you begin to think that we can esteem and admire all sorts of things. They are the things, if I could only, and if I am able to, and if I could just reach this point, and if I could accomplish this goal. And he says, when you begin to elevate things of this life to that stature, it is not the thing that becomes an abomination, it's the attitude of heart that becomes the abomination. That idolatry is covetousness, Paul would say to the Ephesians. That covetousness means I have an inordinate desire for something. I I want it so badly that I'm willing to sacrifice everything else in order to reach it. Because in my mind, that is the most important thing in life. It's a hard thing, but an important thing to ask ourselves from time and time. What are the most important things? What are the critical values? And for a Christian, if you truly have experienced him, it would come to be what Jesus said in Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, seek first to be under his rulership, that he is your king, that we make that priority number one. Because he said, here's my promise that if you will make seeking me the priority of your life, everything else that you will want or need will be added to you in the measure and in the time and the degree to which is appropriate. But basically, we don't want to be like the rich young man who comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he said, keep the commandments. He says, well, I've kept all the commandments. He said, that's good, but here. Sell everything you have and follow me. And it says, the young man went away sorrowful. Now, some have mistakenly interpreted that to mean that in order for you to be a good Christian, you need to sell everything you have and bring it here right in front of me because I know how it needs to be used. God wants me to have a Gulfstream and a Bentley and, oh, no. (laughs) At least if you watch certain Christian TV shows, that's what you'll come up with. But Jesus was hitting on the point, it's not your wealth, but it's the fact that you trust in your wealth, that it has become not only your identity, but it's become your security. It's become the thing that your life is defined by. Having things is not wrong. Enjoying things is not wrong as long as they don't have you and as long as you can't know joy without them then you have a problem. 
then there is an issue of lordship in our life. You see, whereas mankind is addicted to the worship of self, you and I are. You can argue with me or anybody else, but that's the truth, you know. Uh, my wife and I were listening in the background someplace to a song. I can't even remember where we heard it, but I, you, you may remember it. But basically the chorus goes, everybody wants to rule the world. And we looked at each other and said, basically that's true. <laughs> Everybody wants to be in charge. Everybody wants to be in control. Everybody wants the world to go the way that we have determined that the world should go in order for us to like the world that we're in. And when it doesn't, we become unhappy. But we're called instead of to self-worship to follow the example that we see of the church embolized by the 24 elders who fall face down in worship and sing a completely new song. It's not something that's ever been copyrighted and printed and sung on earth before. A song that's completely unique to them in this moment where they say, you are worthy to take the scroll and open the seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And as soon as they begin to sing into this chorus, we're told that, Myriads of angels sing with a loud, literally a megas voice. Megas there in the original means with intensity and great effort. I mean, they're literally singing with everything that was within them. The angels are declaring, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then finally, they're joined in the chorus with every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. And they're singing to him who sits on the throne in the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the 24 elders just simply say, Amen. It's almost like we're looking at these beings who are addicted to praise in contrast to humanity, which is addicted to being praised. It's that abdication of that right of rulership over my own life that is a critical transaction that needs to take place in my soul in order for me to really begin to apprehend that for which I have been created. What we see betrayed in heaven is really the way God intended for humanity to live their life. And yet we find ourselves just on the opposite end of it. I think it's noteworthy that three times in the NIV's translation of this, these verses that we read, it uses the word to sing. The church is singing, the myriad of angels are singing, that every created thing, which is in a way is kind of a colloquial thing to everything from fish to sticks, that we are no longer groaning as in childbirth, as Paul said in chapter 8, verse 20, but rather joyful praise and adoration because of the new birth. And apparently, music is part of the language and the medium of communication of heaven because even from the creation itself, it says the creation sang. Job put it, he said, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The sons of God talking about the angelic host in that context. 
Isaiah put it this way, the mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And even when we read later on in chapter 14 about the 144,000 Jews who were redeemed during the tribulation, he says, they sang as it were a new song before the throne. No one could learn that song except those redeemed from the earth. Fascinating statement, really, when you ponder it for a moment. A song that cannot be learned except you become part of the redeemed. It has such an exclusive spiritual dimension to it that only people who have that spirit can even know the words or even sing it. You see, it becomes clear that even at the birth of Jesus, at the nativity, we find that a huge angelic choir appears singing glory to God in the highest. So that music has always permeated the life of the church and the people of God. Because it permeates the very creation itself. That every creature on land and sea and sky is emitting notes and rhythms whether we realize it or not. From stars to sticks, from birds to baboons, insects, waves, whales, even people ourselves are making music which explains to us why music happens to be everywhere all the time. I mean, it comes in various forms and the instrumentations oftentimes are unusual. The tones may not be familiar. The rhythms may seem off to us. But it is ubiquitous and it is inherent in every sector of the world. I remember the first time I was in India in a, a small village uh, I don't even know where I was. I just was not where I had ever been before. And we're in this group of, of Indian Christians sitting there in a circle and they're playing, they have amplifiers and instruments and keyboards and, and I, I'm convinced that all the speakers had been broken in advance so that they would buzz that way. And they were singing at the top of their lungs and it was cacophonous. I mean, it was the, the tone, tones were unfamiliar. I couldn't understand the lyrics. But something was very obvious to me, that they were worshiping their brains out. There was such an intensity and such a celebration. And as I was talking with one of the pastors, he's explained to me, he said, they come here and they're safe to worship God. The service actually lasted five hours and, uh, and they wanted me to keep going. Bless their souls. <laughs> but he says many of them will go home and be abused and mistreated. So they come here and they praise God with everything that's in them because it's really the only time they can do it publicly. You see, like our creator who made us, we're inveterate musical beings. <laughs> I mean, even those of you who can't hold a tune in a bucket can hum a tune in the shower. And if not that, you at least have that tune in your heart. We find that the very first instrument that was ever created was undoubtedly our voices themselves. 
But even shortly after creation, mankind became inspired to create instruments in imitation of heaven itself probably, although it seems to have been done by the wicked descendants of Cain. It says in Genesis 4.21 that Jubal was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. In fact, the word in Hebrew, jubilim, literally means a wind instrument. And so many scholars believe, both archaeologists and theologists, believe that uh, the first instruments were simply reeds, many times bones or stick that were blown through to create different sounds and tunes. That's real possible. So it's not surprising that the reference to music and singing appears throughout the New Testament. Just the word song shows up over 400 times. In the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in the temple, we find not just music, but worship music, led by hundreds of Levitical singers and musicians, which became Israel's central identity that they finally organized into the thing, this hymn book called the Psalms, which makes up 7% of the Bible in itself, half of them being written by David. Even Solomon, who builds the temple, we're told, wrote 105 songs, albeit they were not all songs of worship, I'm afraid. The Song of Solomon seems to be more about pleasure and passion, but nonetheless, we find that songs were such a central part of everything that made up of the life of God's people from the very beginning. So it's not surprising that we read that the early church not only sang, but were specifically commanded to do so. In Ephesians 5, Paul said, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. In Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you right richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart. Even in James 5.13 where James simply says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. You see, music, not just speaking and preaching and teaching and reading, is also supposed to be part of the sounds that are made by the redeemed. Now, what's interesting as we look at the New Testament, there is no reference to a worship pastor or leader. I mean, we're told there's apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But one is left with the impression that the Church is the choir, and the Holy Spirit is to be the worship leader, the one to whom we are to be following. You see, music is everywhere because it is the most unique aspect of our minds. It's probably the most important form of communication of thoughts and feelings, something that isn't lost on the scientific world. For example, I read one paper that said, listening to music can improve learning and memory and mental alertness. It triggers the release of three powerful chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Oxytocin is kind of the love hormone. 
You know, it's, it's that infatuation that you feel that you say, no, this is real love. And basically, no, it's just a chemical. But you know if people are really in love is when the chemical wears off, they still lay their lives down for each other. That's what love does. <laughs> you know, when the feeling wears off and you, you know, it's like the song goes, the feeling's gone. I think, of course it's gone. Or you're like Olivia Newton-John, who was torn between two lovers, don't know what to do. <laughs> yes, I gave that career up. <laughs> but basically, it, it gives us a rush of pleasure. It supports being motivated in some way and helps us feel connected to others. And suddenly you begin to understand, why does God say that the church should sing together? Because that singing together creates sort of a connection. Now, I have my own personal experience with this because I, when I was a teenager, I began to get into music because uh, I liked girls. And I thought if I played in a band, girls would like me. Didn't turn out that way, but nonetheless, it was a plan. But I never really, really enjoyed it to any great degree. But when I got saved, I had a guitar. And so people said, can you play it? And I said, sort of. So we did worship. In fact, I wrote songs for the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly one day and said, please don't tell people I wrote that. <laughs> I did not give that to you. <laughs> we weren't good. But I can remember even to this moment so clearly in mind, sitting in the back of my 1951 Chevy panel truck, packed with a bunch of guys. We'd just been out in the streets sharing the gospel and now we'd lock the doors and sitting inside there together starting to pray and we started to sing. And these bunch of rough kids who were not musically astute at all but we seemed to know all the same words and we just sang and sang and sang and sang. And I remember just sitting there saying, God, I have never been so happy in all of my life. There was nothing recordable. There was nothing, nobody's going to listen and saying, wow, that's, that's really great. Except the Father <laughs> who heard our rude and rough singings translated into the praise of heaven. Another writer said, music can transport us to the past and can allow us to recall fond memories. This is because listening to the same music repeatedly creates associations in our brain with the emotions and experienced within listening to that music. So even when we replay music from years ago, we can immediately reconnect with the emotions and feelings that were being experienced at the time, which explains elevators. It was a sharp moment when I realized that when I was tapping my foot to the music in the elevator, it was the culture's way of saying, you're old. <laughs> but it, have you ever noticed how the, it, it fills our lives? The music is the only medium that exists that connects both the left the emotive, creative side of my brain with the right side of thinking and intellect and logic and cognitive thinking. 
So that it's the only thing that I do where I am thinking about it and I am feeling it at the same time. Nor has this been lost on those who make music. Who found that they can curb or they can control or they can conform. Even transform human behavior by the simple use of song, sound and lighting. We see it in the history of military marches or in national anthems. You remember that old national anthem that used to grip your heart? Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. Remember that one? Well, if you lived in Germany in 1936, you probably would have stiffened your spine, squared your shoulders. Tears would have shrieked down your cheeks because it pulled up in you some kind of primal <laughs> instinct that was better left behind. Every time I watch a television commercial, I'm struck with how they have tapped into contemporary and popular songs, some new and some old, depending on whether it's a pharmaceutical or a car commercial. Pharmaceuticals are stuff that I knew. Car commercials are stuff that young people know. But what they're trying to do is draw you into an emotional experience where you identify with that product and have a positive feeling about it. And that fact is not overlooked by Satan. In fact, Ezekiel 28 suggests, many commentators say that Satan himself was the leader of music in heaven before his fall. See, characteristically, what God creates for good, Satan invariably uses for evil. Especially in our media-driven era, this is happening even within the church. It does matter what kind of music you listen to. And I'm not saying you're in sin because you're listening to secular tunes. But Paul left us a very clear and balanced warning when he wrote to the Corinthians and said, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is profitable. That all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. You see, there are songs that direct my thoughts to God and are usually beneficial than those songs that tend to direct my thoughts to me. But of greater concern for me is how success has changed music within the church and led to an interesting industry. As my son, who is actually in this industry, said, the so-called Christian music industry. That just like Christian publishing, Christian music now has wholly been consumed by non-Christian conglomerates who see how profitable it is because 68% of Americans listen to gospel music of one kind or another at least once a month. I'll never forget the words of John Fisher, who at the time was one of the most popular and successful Christian musicians. He was saying, you know, when I first got saved, I just started writing songs about Jesus because I love Jesus, and I wanted to write songs about Jesus so I could sing about Jesus. 
See, many of us got saved. There was no such thing as contemporary Christian music. There was Christian songs that were sung, music, traditional hits that were sung by Elvis and Tennessee Ernie Ford and other people. And, and my wife and I actually would buy an Elvis album where he sang gospel songs just so we could have Christian music because there was no recorded Christian music to speak of that was at least contemporary. Some of us know the Happy Goodmans and uh, those people like that, but there just wasn't this contemporary Christian scene. So we, if we wanted to be contemporary, we just started playing music like we were accustomed to playing music. And that's where a lot of groups like Love Song and the second chapter of Acts and a score of other ones began to come onto the scene Love Song was just simply a bar band made up of eight guys, and it depended on which guys were the most sober who would play that night at the bar to get paid. And then they got saved, and they just continued writing songs, but suddenly they were writing songs about Jesus. And I remember Pastor Chuck talking about how these guys came to him and said, well, we, we wrote these songs, and we'd like to play them at church this Wednesday night. And Chuck said, well, okay. He said, I hated rock and roll. I hated electric guitars. I didn't like anything about the music. I really didn't care for their long hair and their looks and all this sort of stuff. We figured we'd get them cleaned up soon enough. And so I let them start playing and I'm sitting there and he says, as they start playing, the Holy Spirit falls on me and tears begin to run down my face. And that's how it began. It wasn't something that was published or popular. There was no market for it. But it began to catch on very, very quickly that even to the point where many Christian artists began to cross over into the secular market because they wanted to be bigger and better celebrities. In some ways, the opposite is happening today where we find that secular artists are crossing over into the Christian sec sector. Some of it do, do it as an expression of newfound faith. I do not want to counter that. But others do it because it's a way of newfound fortune. And some of the choruses rouse us to faith and <laughs> do a plug here. Corey Asbury's latest album, Kind, is one of the most powerful things I've listened to in a long time. Some of them rouse us to great faith and other ones just simply rouse us. We can have a sensational experience without having a spiritual encounter with God. That even many large Christian concerts are particularly designed by the use of sound and by use of lighting and by the use of visual effects all to stimulate people into a height of fervor where they're bouncing and jumping up and down and they're so excited and they, they do it to the point of exhaustion. But I love what David DuPlessis said so many years ago. He said, I don't care how high you jump. I'm concerned about how straight you walk when you come down. And so often we end up finding that there's an idea that the Christian experience is all about the emotional high. To the place that some people say, well, I don't feel like I've worshipped God because I'm not exhausted from running up and down the aisle." And sadly, as the production quality of Christian music has improved, it's certainly equal with whatever's out there in the secular realm. 
our expectations within the church have changed as well. Many of us see church as just simply another entertainment venue, not a space for corporate worship. Our focus is not on what we, it's on what we hear and we see, what we can discern sensually, but we may not even sing at all. We focus on what we get out of it, not what we give into it. We become more concerned about the quality of our worship. And we've appreciably reduced the actual quantity of our worship. Because we see worship as another spectator activity. We're not people who are engaged in actually worshiping. Years ago, I used to fairly often go and speak in churches in Germany. And I remember one particular church where other friends would say, man, the worship is so great in that church. And, and as I was to speak there, I was sitting in the congregation and I just was analyzing the worship. <laughs> and I thought, the musicians are, are good, they're fine, their voices are fine. I mean, it's all in German and I know a little German so I felt like I could be a part of this. But as I reflected, I thought, what is it that is moving me? And the thing that moved me was that every person in that church were singing at the top of their lungs. Because, you see, they had been trained to sing from kindergarten. They weren't concerned about, is my voice good? Am I on key? What is the person next to me going to think about me if I really sing it? They just let it out. And I mean, there, granted, there were a few I wanted to say, you can turn it down a few notches, you know? You don't have to turn it all the way up to 11. <laughs> but I realized it wasn't so much about the worship team as it was the fact that the people were earnestly, intensely worshiping. Now, I'm not saying that you can go to a worship service and you hear music that's not very good. I mean, there's a whole app if you want. I mean... In fact, I'm, I'm, I have it on my phone. I haven't checked in a while, but it's called Worship Fails. It's interesting. On, on Instagram, you get Worship Fails. It, it, it shows various worship teams who <laughs> bomb really badly. <laughs> and some of them are very good, but, you know, they get off key and they, <laughs> or, or they fall over the drums, the sets fall. It's, it's, it's funny watching people prove that they're total losers. You know, that way I don't feel alone. But I'm also struck when a friend of mine, Malcolm Wilde, said once, who himself was a very successful Christian musician back in the day, the pastor of the church in Florida now, and he said after the service, a lady came up to him and said, Pastor, well, the worship wasn't very good this morning, was it? And in his British <laughs> accent, he said, Madam... It wasn't meant for you. And I think that's our problem. We're so accustomed to being catered and to be consumers that our thought is not upon how do I worship God. I'm, I'm not focusing on the, on the lyrics and, and just singing them and contemplating them and saying, God, I just want this to be a prayer that I'm expressing to you. I'm really concerned about how I'm entertained or not entertained 
by the gifts of the musicians. Let me close with this. Matt Redman, who is one of the more successful Christian singers and songwriters and was part of a whole wonderful British movement of Christian worship in the 1990s. He wrote a song that is fairly legend. I don't hear it sung as much as I used to. It was called A Heart of Worship. But he told a story about how he came to that song. Let me share with you his, his explanation. He said, the song was born from a period of apathy in my home church. The congregation was struggling to find meaning in its musical outpouring. There was a dynamic missing, and so the pastor did a very brave thing. He decided to get rid of the sound system and the band for a season, and we gathered with just our voices. His point was that we had lost our way in worship, and the way to get back would be to strip everything away reminding his church family to be producers in worship, not just consumers, the pastor asked, when you come through the doors on Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? The question initially led to some embarrassing silence. But eventually people broke into a cappella songs and heartfelt prayers, encountering God in a fresh way. And before long, we introduced the musicians and the sound systems back into our worship, but we had gained a new perspective that worship is all about Jesus. And he commands a response in the depths of our soul, no matter what the circumstance and the setting. The heart of worship simply describes what, what occurred and then he includes this one stanza from the song. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Why does this matter to you and me today? Because one day you and I, Lord willing, if you're a follower, if you're a knower of Jesus, one day you and I will be freed from the limitations of this world and we will stand in the holy presence of the almighty God and we will find ourselves being permeated with the music of heaven. It will flow through every cell of your body. It will capture your mind. And praise will not be something that you will look at the text and say, okay, this is the part where I praise God. But you will just behold the beauty of his holiness. And you will just praise him with everything you have, with all your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. It'll be a moment where no longer will you talk about perceiving the moment because you will be so captured by the moment. But until then, we need to be mindful that God is to be worshipped, that God is to be praised.
that God doesn't dictate what kind of music you listen to, but there's something about sitting down and listening to music that does lift the heart and lift the spirit and draws you close to God. There's something profound in that. I have a personal belief that demons hate worship music. And so when I feel pretty dark and heavily oppressed, we crank up the worship <laughs> and let Jesus, let his saints sing those songs. And I think that the demons are covering their ears and running out of the room going, no! Because they know that the day and the hour is coming when the whole earth that every stick and stone will cry out his praise and his glory and say, worthy, worthy is the lamb. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be prepared in heart and mind for that moment. We live in the daily reality of our fallibility and our failings, our shortcomings, our sins that there's none of us who can stand before you and claim to be sinless and without fault. I wonder if there's actually a moment of any day that sin isn't with me in one way or another, seen and unseen, acknowledged or unacknowledged, recognized or even acknowledged, recognized. But I ask God that not only would you forgive us as you always do, but you'd also remind us that you are worthy because you were slain and that you redeemed us through your blood from every tribe and people and nation upon the earth that we might lift our hands and worship and praise you. Draw us hearts to that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.